It's good to have our souls refreshed regardless of what state we may have entered into. The kindness of God that through the reading of his word, through singing together, through uniting our hearts in prayer, that he makes his will known and his goodness and mercy towards us. And it's on the basis of that goodness and mercy that we open his word expecting to hear from him because he is a God who not only makes himself known but delights to make his mercy known. So would you with me turn in your copy of God's word this morning. We return to the book of Exodus chapter 19. Exodus 19. Begin in verse 1. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out the land of Egypt... On that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So these are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all the words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all people, and you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people. They washed their garments, and he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke, because of the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder, The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses up to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through, so that the Lord 
to, through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who came near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, People cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the mountain, went down to the people, and told them. Father, we pray and we ask that as we have your word before us, and it has just been read in our midst and heard with our ears, that, Father, you would by your Spirit cause it to move further than just beyond our ears and the very thoughts in our heads. That, Lord, you would do what only you could do by the ministry of your Spirit, by causing your word to bring light to illuminate our path, to bring instruction that we might be well taught. Lord, ultimately to bring transformation and change. That, Father, by your word you would work in us to such a degree that we would see your word as a sure foundation, an anchor of hope. That we would understand your word to be the very basis by which we have all confidence that we respond in all faith and that we are enabled to persevere for all our days. Lord, we're asking that by your word and by your spirit, you would instruct us as your people, that you would help us to see and to hear, to lay hold of not only the, the wonderful truth that is here, but how that truth resounds and is magnified in your son, Jesus. Father, what we are praying this morning is that you would show us the glory of your son, that we would be found resting confident in him, and Lord Jesus, that you would be doing this even among those who do not yet believe. That, Father, that you would move upon unbelief to bring faith. And that you would move upon hardness to bring softness. That, Lord Jesus, you would be gracious this morning to your people. That you yourself would be glorified, we pray. Amen. As we're reading through the book of Exodus, you may remember that it begins with a promise. It begins with a promise that God would bring his people out of bondage and bring them to himself. On the surface, this sounds like really good news. This sounds like the sort of story you would want to keep reading. This sounds like the sort of story that you would want to turn page after page to find out how does this people who are in bondage, in slavery, how do they become liberated to serve God who would be their rescuer. No more slavery, no more bricks, no more cruel oppression, because we are going to serve Yahweh instead of Pharaoh. But the unfolding question, as you keep turning pages, has to do with assurance. It has to do with the assurance that this God will dwell with his people in peace and not judgment. Is this God safe? I mean, after all, plague after plague, judgment after judgment, reveals the wisdom, the power, and the might of this God to strike judgment and afflictions upon all those who disobey Him. And then in chapter 12, it's even more explicitly clear that no one is safe in the presence of God. 
neither Israelite nor Egyptian, only those who are covered by the blood of the Passover lamb are spared. The separation between God and man could not be more explicit in the book of Exodus. And in chapter 19, that separation between God and man is most clearly seen. God meets with them. He descends upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all people. But as he descends, there is clear boundaries to be set. This is not just a run up the mountain and have a picnic. There is clear delineation between this is where God is, this is where you are, and you shall not breach that division. They may not even go up on the mountain, nor even touch the edge of it, under penalty of death. Now, in the morning of God's planned descent upon this mountain, there's thunder, there's lightning, there's a thick cloud, there's a very loud trumpet blast, and Moses tells us that all that this did in the people is that it caused them to tremble, in verse 16. And then you keep reading the description, when the Lord does descend, he's visibly present in the form of fire. And the whole mountain that they are before begins to tremble. And the blast of a trumpet begins to grow louder and louder. And then once God does speak in their presence, they're still not relieved. If you look ahead to chapter 20, after God speaks and he gives these ten words, in chapter 20, verse 18, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. God has assured them, these very people, that they will be his treasured possession among all peoples. But their confidence in God's favor is not exactly certain. God had promised to bless them. But the assurance of that blessing, it seems and sounds questionable by their response. What about you? How confident are you of God's blessing upon your life? And what is the assurance that you have that God will be favorable to you? What grounds are you standing upon that God would welcome you, sustain you, even hear your prayers, be glad to hear your voice? On what basis are you building that confidence? The answer to these deeply personal questions can either drive our souls into deep despair or become this anchor to a firm foundation that cannot be shaken. And Exodus 19, ironically enough, opens up the source of confidence for God's people that we can know and have God's blessing upon us. The primary way that we're introduced to the subject, it comes through the concept of covenant. This is the term that God uses with Moses back in verse 9 of chapter 19, noting that it would be through the form of a covenant that Israel would experience God's purposes for them. 
Now, you may know, but just so we're all on the same page, a covenant is a solemn agreement between two or more parties. Typically, it's a binding relationship that includes clearly defined terms, who the participants are, there's an oath, and there's conditions. God says, I'm going to enter into a covenant with you. I'm going to give you terms. I'm going to expect an oath. And there's going to be the conditions and the clarification of who's participating in this. Now, it's through this concept of a covenant that we, as God's people, discover the assurance of our salvation and that the experience of the gospel really is good news. I want you to notice first how this unfolds in chapter 19. Notice first the terms of this particular covenant. In verses 5 through 6, chapter 19, we get to the heart of the matter. God comes to Israel, reminding them of his strong hand in which he brought them out of bondage and to himself. And in this, he promises to these people that he will, this great blessing to them will continue, that they shall be his treasured possession. And secondly, they will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, keep in mind, this is not new revelation. Keep in mind, this is really unfolding or an elaboration upon what God has already said. The context of this covenant is a covenant that God made with Abraham. In Exodus 6, if you want to turn back over there, chapter, chapter 6, verse 1, We read, the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. and With a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Verse 4, I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan. The land in which they lived is sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians held, held as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. This whole story begins with God saying, I have not forgot my people. I have remembered the covenant that I have made with Abraham. The promise that I made to Abraham is that I would give to him a people and a place, and the sign of this covenant would be circumcision, and God comes to Moses and he says, I've heard the cries of my people and I'm coming to them remembering my promise, my covenant that I've made with Abraham. What this means is that the context of the Mosaic covenant, which is what's happening here in chapter 19, a covenant given to Moses, the context of the Mosaic covenant is placed within God's covenant with Abraham. God promised Abraham certain promises that had to do with life in Canaan. And God comes to the very descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, and says, I have not forgotten. I've remembered. I'm going to deliver you on the basis of that promise that I made to Abraham. So the promises of the Mosaic Covenant are really just an enjoyment of what God has already promised to Abraham. But the context comes with certain conditions. Did you hear the conditions as you read through chapter 19? 
common feature within covenants is to have clearly defined terms, and the Mosaic Covenant certainly has some really critical terms. You see them there in verse 5. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. Do you hear the terms? Do you hear the conditions? The promise of blessing is suspended upon the condition of their obedience. Israel must obey God's law to remain a blessed people. If they want to enjoy all the promises that God gave to Abram, then they must obey the words that God gives. This is really an identical pattern to what God has already set up in chapter 17 of Genesis because God expresses the same sort of kindness towards Abram before requiring their obedience with the penalty of disinheritance. Meaning I'm promising a people in a place, but if you are unfaithful to my covenant, then I will eject you from that place. I will discipline you. If Israel obeys God's commands, they will enjoy the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. If they heed his voice, they'll be his treasured possession. If they do not listen to his word, then they will not enjoy the promises given to them through Abraham. But what we read in verse 6 is that the people answered with one voice saying, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. They didn't run away and said, no, we won't have any of that. They heard the if you obey, you shall be blessed. And they responded in unison saying, we're in. We will do it. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Such glorious promises are made here in Exodus 19. That God will be their God, that he will dwell with them, that they will be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. So many great promises here, but they're suspended upon such really a fragile condition that all of this depends upon Israel's obedience. Well, the context of this covenant brings us to the weakness of this particular covenant. And friends, it is weak. There is a weak point in this covenant. Now, maybe you didn't see it, or maybe it doesn't sound that bad to you. Maybe at first glance, the covenant just seems pretty reasonable. I mean, just do what God says and your life will be fine. I mean, is it really any more complicated than that? I mean, after all, just think what he's done for us. Rescued from Egypt. He crushed Pharaoh. Drowned his entire army. I mean, the least we could do, guys, is obey what he asked. And then he's going to bless us in return. You could almost hear some of that reasoning going. We're obliged to obey this God. How hard could it be? After all he's done for us. We'll do it. But the testimony of Scripture reveals that the weak point of this covenant is exactly this. The pledged obedience of Israel. In fact, you don't have to read too much further to figure out just how well this plan goes. Because in the very next chapter, take, I don't know, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. That's one of the words God gives. One of the words that Israel said, we shall do. You don't have to go, but just 12 chapters further. 
Exodus 32, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off your rings of gold that are on your ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. All that the Lord has said, we will do. This pattern of unfaithfulness and this breach of covenant, it fills the prayers of Nehemiah centuries later. Nehemiah looks back on his own people, and he recalls this very incident here in Exodus 19. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 7, is his prayer. He says, you are the Lord, your Yahweh. The God who chose Abram and brought him out of the Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and you made with him a covenant to give his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise for you are righteous. He goes on in verse 13. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws and good statutes and commandments. Then verse 29, and you warned them in order to turn them back to your law, yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nehemiah looks around and he says, I know why we're here. I know why this has happened. God, it's happened exactly like you said it would. You made a covenant with Abram. You made great promises, suspended upon a condition that Moses gave to them, and we've been unfaithful to your good and true commandments. So what we can say, based upon the laws, the promises, and the threats outlined here in Exodus 19, that the Mosaic covenant was a covenant of works for the life in the land of Canaan. Do this and you will live. If you obey, it will go well with you. Insofar as Israel obeyed the Mosaic law, they would enjoy all the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. And insofar as Israel disobeys the Mosaic law, they would experience all the curses and penalties of the covenant. It's weaker still. As if that wasn't hard enough. The Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, did nothing to change the nature of the participants. Neither covenant granted them a new heart. Neither covenant provided them any help to keep the commandments. 
Now, God would provide a sacrificial system to cover their sin, but neither covenant made a provision for the empowerment towards obedience. This is what you must do. And in his mercy, God says, and if you don't, I will provide atonement. I will provide covering. But even in that covering, there was still something missing. Are you picking up on the weakness of this covenant? The weak point of this covenant? Now, string together a couple thousand years, marked off by the patterns of pledges for obedience, failure to obey, covering of sin, renewed pledges for obedience, failure to obey, covering for sin, repeat, repeat, repeat. What sort of lesson, what sort of emphasis do you think you're going to learn under that sort of system? What do you think that covenant is going to bring to the surface? Now added to that, you have generations of prophets who are sent by God and speak for God by revealing warnings and promises and instruction, but the people still fail to obey the covenant. You read of kings who rise to the throne. Some are good, some are evil. You read through Kings and Chronicles, is that not the repeated emphasis? He was good. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord. He was evil. He was even more evil than his grandfather. He was a good king, and he led the... He was a bad... Despite the many kings sent, even in the best kings, it's clear that the people are still prone to wander and rebel. Something's missing. Prophets, kings, you read even of a priesthood whom God establishes to cover the sins of his people. Okay, my people fail, but their sins are covered. Yet, even in this, there's an incompleteness. There is a longing, a groaning, not just for the covering of sin, but, oh, to be free from sin. The emphasis of the entire Old Testament is that these earthly prophets, priests, and kings are insufficient. They have a glimmer of hope, but they fail to really deliver anything of substance. It's almost like the old covenant, the entirety of it, exists to show the need for another covenant, for a better covenant, maybe even one with a better covenant head. The context of this covenant and the weakness of this particular covenant set the stage for the glory of the new covenant. The purpose of the old covenant, which includes Abraham, Moses, and David, the purpose of the old covenant is to bring forth the new covenant. The very purpose of this scaffolding to be put up was to reveal the purpose of God and what he was doing. The old brings forth the new, and the heart of the new covenant is Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah who freely offers life and salvation to sinners. Because Jesus is the son of Abraham. He's the son of David. He's the one through whom all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. He's the greater son who takes on many sons to glory. He's bringing about a new humanity. He's establishing a new house. He's bringing a new people to be God's own possession. 
And Jesus Christ completed his earthly ministry within the context of the covenants of Israel. This is why Paul says in Galatians that he was born under the law in order to redeem those out under the law. How? Well, the book of Hebrews is tremendously helpful here. We're just going to skim a few portions of the main points of the exhortation from Hebrews to show us how the weakness of this old covenant is swallowed up by the glory of the new covenant. Turn over in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. We're just going to glance at three or four key statements in this exhortation to show us what's happening in Exodus 19 is really the back door to show us the glory of what we read in our New Testament. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. Now look over to chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, As much more glory as the builder of a house has, more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify of the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Which brings us to then chapter 7, verse 22, where Paul, or the preacher makes this great exhortation. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. He's building all towards this to show how Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. What sort of covenant are we talking about? Chapter 8. Look at verse 5. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this 
is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one to his neighbor and each one to his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The exhortation of the book of Hebrews is to consider Christ and consider that this Jesus is better than. He is the guarantee, the mediator of a better covenant. And what Hebrews 8 does is goes back to Jeremiah 31 where God promised these very words. He said, I will make a better covenant. I will enter into a new covenant. And the terms of this new covenant, they will be glorious. What you hear is that I will be their God. They will be my people. Nobody's going to turn to anyone else who's a member of this covenant and say, know the Lord, because everybody in this covenant will know the Lord. Their sins will be forgiven. I will remember them no more, because I've been merciful to these people. The new covenant supersedes, overwhelms the old, because the purpose of the old was to bring forth the new. And so when we look at Exodus 19, what we're seeing, friends, is a shadow. It has the outline, it has the rough shape of something substantial here. But at its best, it's just a shadow. The substance is Christ. Just as God required obedience and consecration of Israel in chapter 8, remember back to the terms, you must obey, you must consecrate yourself. Just as God required obedience and consecration, Jesus steps in as the mediator of a better covenant by providing better obedience and better consecration. Consider how this works itself out. Jesus provides the obedience. Just as Israel was called to enter in to obey the law and keep the covenant, so too Jesus. If you read through the servant songs of Isaiah, you can find those in 42, 49, 50, and 52. If you read through those servant songs, you find that God the Father gives a mission to his servant. The Father lays upon the Son certain obligations and commitments. Do you know what those commitments are? Well, that he must be in human flesh. That he must obey the law perfectly. That he must offer himself as a substitutionary sacrifice for a very special people. And God promises to supply his spirit to his servant to equip him and sustain him for this mission. Literally, there's an eternal covenant of redemption between the Father and Son concerning the people of God. And this covenant of redemption was a covenant of works. God the Son had to fulfill the commands in order to obtain the blessings of this covenant of redemption. Jesus offers a better obedience. And he offers a better consecration. Just as Israel had to purify themselves 
and consecrate themselves unto the Lord. Jesus comes providing himself as the perfect offering. Again in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12, he entered once and for all into the holy place, not by the means of blood and goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And so it's upon the work of redemption that the terms of the covenant of grace, which we call the new covenant, are established. The glory of the new covenant, which every Christian is a member of, is that the obedience that's required is satisfied through the redemptive work of Christ, and the divine blessings are then bestowed upon God's people. So we return then to our original question, a question of assurance before God. How confident are you of God's blessing upon your life? On what grounds should God provide for you, welcome you, sustain you? How comfortable are you drawing near to God this morning? Make no mistake, the blessing of God upon his people is dependent upon obedience. The all-important question is, Whose obedience are we trusting in? Because the answer to all of those previous questions have everything to do with this issue of obedience. Because of the new covenant, the relationship between obedience and blessing is completely transformed. The blessing is secured through the obedience of Jesus Christ. So what that means is you bring your guilty conscience before God in the name of Christ and you plead for forgiveness on the basis of Christ's work and you have confidence that he will hear your prayer and grant forgiveness because Christ has been obedient. He's satisfied the terms. This means that when we are weary and heavy laden, that we can come before God and say, please strengthen me to do your will. And that he delights to impart grace and strength to empower us to run with all endurance, with all joy. Because we're not coming on the merit of our own obedience, but we're coming on the merit of one who's gone before us. Who's offered a perfect obedience and a better consecration. And so we trade on the credit of Christ. And we say, please help me, sustain me, satisfy me. Christian, what this means is that for all of our needs the assurance of our eternal blessings are grounded upon the finished work of Christ because he is the faithful mediator of a better covenant. Jesus was faithful to accomplish the terms of the covenant. Do you notice? We inherit the identical blessings that God has promised for his people. This is Peter's whole point. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. He's writing to God's people. He's not writing to national Israel. He is writing to God's covenant people. And what does Peter say? But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession 
that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Does that sound familiar? Blessing is secured through the obedience of Christ. And now we live lives of obedience, not to secure blessing, but as a joyful response of love. My obedience is not given to God as a standard for justification or condemnation, but as a joyful act of worship, delighting and pleasing my Savior. That's why we can say obedience and blessing have completely been transformed in the new covenant. Moses stood on a mountain and declared, if you will obey, you shall be. And I have the privilege of standing here this morning as a minister of the new covenant and declare, because Christ has, you are. People of God, we gather on the first day of the week. Well, because Jesus rose on the first day of the week. But just think about the pattern that we're setting for ourselves. Here we are on day one of a new week. And we are gathering to hear of all the blessings that God has secured through his son for his people. We hear of it. We receive it by faith. And then we go and live lives of joyful worship. A worship of obedience in response. We're not starting with obedience and working towards blessing. We start by hearing of the blessing and we respond in glad obedience. The new covenant completely transforms this understanding of blessing, obedience, and assurance. That's why Horatius Bonner could rightly sing, in which we shall in a few moments, Thy work alone, O Christ, can ease this weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. Thy love to me, O God, not mine to thee, can rid me of this dark unrest and set my spirit free. Do you hear the emphasis of that language? Thy work, thy blood, thy love. The blessing of obedience is most certainly a theme of Scripture. And the hope of the Christian, and the very reason for our existence, is because Christ has obeyed, and therefore we inherit the blessing. Friend, this is the good news that transforms lives. This is the good news that transforms behavior. This is the good news that lifts our heads up, even in the most (laughs) difficult, the most agonizing and painful circumstances that Christ has secured all that we need to live lives joyfully unto this God who rescues us for his own pleasure and for his own good possession. Let's look to him this morning, giving our thanks to him. Father, we praise your name this morning to hear that you are so kind and merciful that you would even enter into covenant with your people. And to read even further of what sort of covenant you would make the glory of this covenant of redemption. 
between you, our Heavenly Father, and our Lord Jesus, supplied by your own Spirit, that we might be brought out of darkness and into light. Thank you for your great kindness and mercy. Thank you for the tremendous grace that you extend to sinners. Lord, and thank you for the joy and assurance that is now ours as the benefactors of all that you accomplish on our behalf, doing what we ought to but could not do. Lord, we pray that the reality of this grace would not only transform our minds or even the words that comes from our lips, oh, but Father, would you continue to warm our hearts, revive them with genuine love towards you, continue to cause the the grandeur of this blessing and what we've been called into as, as a holy people. Lord, work that out in our lives that through our lives we could see this joyful response of what we've experienced that unto you and not unto us would be the praise and the glory, the adoration we ask in Christ's name. Amen.